show today. I've got a sermon I want to share with you, but before I tell you about that, let me talk about a couple of rants that I've done already. I've had a ton of feedback about the masculinity discussion. The basic premise is the central issue, in my humble opinion, that plagues modern masculinity is isolation. Uh, men are isolated. Men are uh, living disconnected from others. And as scripture tells us, it is not good for a man to be alone. It says that in the beginning, talking about Adam and Eve, and the truth in that story has not dissipated. It has not disappeared. It continues to be front and center. And we see the byproducts of that over and over again, isolation, addictions, discouragement, um, you know, terrible behavior all seem to be connected to isolation. And it, it's to the point where you see healthy male relationships. And sometimes we don't know like what to do with that. Uh, I was uh, with some friends this past weekend, a few friends of the show, uh, Jason Miller, uh, Jay had his 40th birthday. And so a couple of us got together, uh, Carp, who is Manda Carpenter's husband, Eric, and then uh, Seth Abram, uh, who, somehow he's not been on the podcast yet, but uh, the others have been uh, love on the podcast. But uh, we were together and, uh, you know, the joke is that if I forget who said it, but one of them said, if you see two guys together, the natural thought is that must be two gay guys. If you see two women together, the natural thought is not that, uh, I don't know the percentage of the population that would identify as gay, uh, versus lesbian, but statistically I would assume that it's probably a similar percentile. Yet when we see two guys together, we are so used to a, a dearth of male healthy relationships that the only way to imagine a relationship of a man and another man being together, having a meal is if it's sexualized. Whereas uh, you, you don't see that as much with women. Now that's an overstatement. And I'm not saying that there aren't women who are struggling with substantial amounts of isolation, but there is a lot of research. There's stuff that uh, Vox put out. Someone shared that with me after I put the rant out a couple of weeks ago where uh, go, go check this out. It's on their Instagram feed as well. But um, basically the the issue with isolation is double with men to women. And it's I, I think that probably seems to be pretty accurate for what I see um, where we just don't see healthy male relationships. The story in uh, the Jewish text about David and Jonathan, where it says that Jonathan was closer than a brother to David, uh, sometimes I believe gets used as a talking point for the possibility of David and Jonathan being gay, which I don't really see that in the text. I feel like that's a bit of a leap to make. Uh, but the reason that we read it that way is my previous point that we don't often have categories for healthy male relationships because we're so used to men being isolated and independent. And I'm coming to grips more and more with part of the power of the teaching of Jesus is what his life without words taught us, that, that Jesus lived in community, that Jesus had three closest friends, that Jesus had a group of 12 friends, the disciples, that even amongst uh, Peter, James, and John, who were the three closest, you know, John would be quick to tell you, uh, or probably the witness of John's gospel, um, that Jesus had John as a special friend, that he was uh, the one whom Jesus loved, as though, like, there is even, there's like concentric circles of relationships for Jesus. Now, I 
I probably think John's gospel was compiled by some Johannine community. This is probably the popular uh, opinion on modern scholarship on John's gospel. Um, But it kind of makes it even more telling if you have this idea that this story has been orally passed down. It's been transcribed by people who knew John. And so they just knew that John had a special relationship with you. Like they were close friends and that even Jesus himself, God in the flesh, cannot live in isolation, which is fitting because the Trinity teaches us that God has always lived in eternal community with God's self, which that's very confusing. All that to say, we are hardwired for community and you need to invest in it. It's something that you have to prioritize. You have to keep front and center. And one of the things I learned many years ago, the relationships that you keep on the calendar are the relationships that you keep. You got to have things on your calendar to connect to friends. And if you don't maintain those relationships, they're not going to stay around. So keep those things front and center. I know many of us uh, are going through different seasons of life. Many of you who listen to podcasts have gone through seasons of deconstruction. Many of you have found yourself in a, a spiritual location where, you know, maybe what's front and center for you isn't exactly where you're, you are. Uh, maybe the community of faith you're part of isn't asking the questions that you're asking. This is my main uh, soapbox that I'm on recently. And I want to tell you, just like I've told you before in the podcast, you, you got to find connections to others. And it's not easy to do, but you got to prioritize it. Uh, second thing, let me transition to another thing here. Uh, speaking of rants, uh, we had a rant about the situation in Dallas with the Village Church where their senior pastor, Matt Chandler, has gone on leave. And I did a rant about that. And so again, hearing some more feedback about that. And honestly, I think in some ways, these two are kind of connected. I I don't know what happened. I have no inside information. I am not sharing anything that's like breaking news, nor do I think that's probably the right thing to do. Um, But what I would say is someone who from afar roots for Matt and and hopes that this is the best case scenario uh, is the one that's out there, that that it is the true version of it. Uh, It brings up some questions about what is healthy male and female relationship look like? What does healthy friendship between a man and a woman look like? And there there have been some who are quick to say, wait a minute, if this is not romantic, if it's not sexual, um, is this some version of the Billy Graham rule? And maybe it's gone too far. You know, I, I don't want to speak to specifics about this situation because that's not my business. And like I said before, I think this whole thing is more of a Rorschach test that we see in this what we want to see. And the way that we interpret the story probably is more revelatory about our own internal work that we need to do and where we want to jump to and what we want it to be um, probably says more about us than it does about him. But it is an opportunity to talk about, you know, the importance of healthy relationships. And I think part of the witness of Jesus when it comes to sexual purity is not that you need to get rid of other people that are tempting you, but if your right eye causes you to sin, you pluck out your own right eye. And so if there's a problem that you have with how you relate to other people, specifically uh, people that there's um, possible sexual attraction to, the, the issue that you need to deal with is is yourself. And the idea of just saying, all women are bad, so I can't have any one-on-one relationship with another woman. What it does is it it kind of sexualizes all women and so that the only way that you can interact with them is in that context. And I think kind of what the early church was trying to do is to say that, no, you now see women as your sisters and women you see men as your brothers. And so you have to have a different way of relating because now you are family. And again, I think part of this gets to, we need to learn how to have healthy connections with people, which is why like so much of the church, um, the letters that the early churches were written to were, were letters to churches in conflict, but because relationally they just had tough times. And that's, 
Anyway, that's a big issue. Like, how do you have healthy relationships? Men to women, women uh, to women, men to women, all that. Uh, you know, every every situation there, we, we got to get better about that. All that to say, um, y'all don't stay isolated. Connect in a good way, in healthy ways. And uh, yeah, now I'm playing a sermon for you now that uh, I preached not too long ago. Uh, actually, it was just a week and a half ago, I think, um, when uh, when I first preached it. And it's a sermon that sounds pretty similar to some of the conversations we've had on the podcast in which we're trying to describe what the gospel is. And uh, a few years ago, we had uh, Scott McKnight on the podcast, and he had a book that had just come out called The King Jesus Gospel. And one of the arguments that he makes in the book is that many modern churches now have more of a uh, salvation culture than a gospel culture. And one of the ways that he defines that or helps us understand is the idea gospel is a pronouncement about who Jesus is and salvation is what Jesus has done for us. And his argument is that the more we just focus on how Jesus saved us, it makes us less disciples and more people who are just trying to get Jesus to take care of our sin management problem. And I think that's a pretty pressing issue. Um, I I think a lot of times our definition of what the gospel is would be very different than what people uh, in the first century, what people who are writing the gospels uh, use when they use that word. And I feel like if you're going to use a word that's a biblical word, that is a Christian word, that you should let the Bible and the early Christians help you uh, understand what that word actually means. Uh, One of the things that um, 21st century Christians uh, have to understand is that what happened 500 years ago where there was the Protestant Reformation where you had the people like Martin Luther and John Calvin who protested against the way that the church, Catholic church, uh, Orthodox church, had uh, mutated into something that was very legalistic. Um, one of the, probably the most well-known Examples of that was the old adage that when a coin in the offering plate rings, a soul from heaven springs, like where where there was literally a practice that if you give more money than you can get your chosen person out of purgatory or hell or whatever it was, uh, all that say things became very abusive and legalistic. And so the reformers reformed against that and they in a lot of ways, they, they read the Bible through the lens of a very legalistic um, church experience that many people had. Because of that, they interpret Scripture as though Scripture is speaking directly to their situation, which I believe the power of the Spirit helps Scripture translate into where we are. That doesn't mean you go backwards, though, and read our situation into the text, but I do think the text, because of the Spirit, can be read into Our situation, that sounds very similar, but it's substantially different. The situation that they described, a very legalistic world that they had to reform against, uh, had words from Scripture come alive because Scripture does that in all contexts, in all situations. But that doesn't mean their situation defines what happened 1,500 years ago when Jesus came to earth. The point being that a lot of the legalism that we read into the text as children of the Protestant Reformation is probably more a reflection of what took place 500 years ago than actually what was taking place in the first century. And so we have this idea that, you know, God is angry, and to keep angry God away from us, Jesus dies on the cross, and because of that, we have the gospel that now Jesus prevents God from hating us because of our sin, and now that we can live in a healthy relationship with God. I don't think that there isn't part of that to the story, but I don't think anyone in the first century would say that's the gospel. They were asking a different question. And I think it's important for us to ask what that question is so that we can understand the tradition that we find ourselves in.
part of the beauty of Christianity is that it is an inherited religion. It's a religion that was passed down to us. We didn't make this stuff up. Uh, today, uh, I'm actually recording this Sunday afternoon. Uh, our, our church just celebrated our 50th anniversary. And I just got done uh, a service. And part of what we did in the service is I had uh, the guy who was the preacher at this church for 22 of those 50 years. And he and I did a tag team thing together. It was a lot of fun. And it, it, like, it's, it was just a great reminder. Like even the pulpit that I'm in on Sunday, the stage that I preach upon, like it, it, someone was there before me. Like the, the other people help create what we have now. And the same thing is true, not just of 50 years, but you know, 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 years of God-fearing people who've tried to pass down their experience of who God is as it relates to, to their story. And so I, I think it's important to know these words and to use them correctly. I think it makes a difference. So uh, all that said, here's a sermon. If you, if you listen to the podcast for a while, you're going to hear a lot of stuff that, um, you know, maybe Tom Wright and I or McKnight or some other people uh, have discussed. And uh, anyway, I think it's just good to know the words that we talk about. So without further ado, here is um, that sermon. Every one of you, glad you're here. You would have go ahead and take a seat. As Miles and Carolyn said, we are in a series talking about joy. But let me just pause for one second before we get into the sermon on joy. As many of you know, today is a day that our country remembers. On uh, September 11th, we remember what took place years ago. And it's easy on a day like this to remember the evil in the world. It's easy on a day like this to remember the reasons that we have to be afraid and to be scared in this world. It's a day to remember that things don't last forever, that life is deeply fragile. Um, But it would be easy to get lost in the darkness of a day like this and forget the light that was also found on a day like this. It would be easy to forget those who did the very counterintuitive thing and didn't run away from but ran towards. Uh, On a day like this, I remember a friend of mine who was in the army, just gotten out, was accepted in a medical school, and then September 11th took place, and he decided to forego medical school to go back and to serve many more years as a ranger. And I remember the sacrifice that he made. And we remember the sacrifice that many have made. First responders, those helping first responders, those advocating for first responders, those who have continued to choose the way of love and forgiveness over the way of hate. And so I'd encourage us on this day of September 11th, not just to remember the terrible things that happen in this world, but to remember the beautiful ways that love too exists, even in the midst of darkness. Amen? Amen. Uh, We're in the last week on a series on joy. Uh, Last week I was out of town and Sean Palmer was here and did a great job preaching on joy. Amen? Right? Didn't he do a great job? Yes, he obviously raised his daughter well to come to UT, so he's doing good things with his life. Um, But so I get back Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, and I get home, and in our bedroom, my wife and I's bedroom, in case you're wondering who I share a bedroom with, um, I I have this this stack of books that just grows, like part of what I do, I I get free books. You know, some of you are like, hey, I get frequent flyer miles. No, I get books, which is like an adventure in itself, just at home. Um, but my wife is not too excited about these uh, ever-increasing stacks of books in our house, including this one in our bedroom that was like this, and now it was like this. I get home, and the stack of books is now like this. It's gone. No books. 
I come home and I say, hey, Lindsay, uh, do, you, do you know where my stacks, stacks of books are that were in the bedroom? And she goes, I got rid of them. And I said, but, but, but baby, um, I like my books. And she goes, I told you to get rid of them for months. And I said, well, like the Bible says, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. And she says, well, you've had a thousand years to read them. And I said, but, but baby, I need those books. Like I have some books that I need to read in the future. I got, she goes, Luke, you had time. I got rid of them. And I was like, all right, um, where are my books? And she goes, I got rid of them. And then I go, Lindsay, are they in the back of your car? And she said, yes. <laughs> and I was so excited to get my books back, right? It's like a, uh, you know, father receiving a prodigal son back home. Same kind of thing. What was lost is now found. Let's celebrate. I was by myself celebrating, of course. <laughs> but that's happiness, isn't it? Like when, when you have something that you want and it appears in your life, you're happy because you get what you want. It's easy to confuse happiness and joy because for a moment they feel like the same thing. But part of what we've been trying to communicate over the last month and a half is that joy is substantially different than happiness, that joy is a different experience. And for those of you who are visual learners, let's do this little graph on this whiteboard. Now, let me be honest, my penmanship has told me that I should have been a doctor. My scores in biology class told me I shouldn't have been a doctor. So just deal with it, okay? So if we think about our existence, see, it's not that great of handwriting, okay? When, why are we talking so much with my handwriting, okay? Now I'm self-conscious. Um, the most natural thing for any of us when we start with life is our existence begins with me at the very middle of it. That's how every one of us naturally comes out of the womb thinking everything revolves around me. One of the real dark ways that this appears is when there is a divorce, one of the natural phenomenons that happens when there is a child going through the divorce of their parents is for them to ask the question, what did I do to cause this? Right? That's egocentric thinking. It's very basic for adolescents to think this way. It's not so healthy for the rest of us to continue to think this way. And what I would say, if we're going to try to graph out what joy is, is when we take out of the center of existence me and instead... We bring God from outside and God goes into the middle. And this process of me being out of the center of my existence creates the byproduct of joy. Joy is the secondary product of ourselves no longer being at the center of our existence. And as Christians, the replacement is God. God goes in the middle and therefore we experience joy. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to that in just a second. What I want to do for the next few minutes is to get a little bit technical on some basic words that Christians use very frequently and very often. Two words that in many ways are central to how we understand Christianity. And I'm going to get somewhat technical on this, but let me tell you at the very front, this is what I'm trying to communicate. I'm going to put this on the board right here. I want to give you two definitions. The first is the word gospel. The second is the word salvation. The gospel is a statement about who Jesus is. And salvation is about what Jesus has done for you. 
Okay, the gospel is a statement about Jesus and salvation is a statement about what Jesus has done for you and for me. Two different words, two different things they're describing. Now, when we think about the Bible and we think about Jesus and we think Jesus' appearance and we think why we want to be followers of Jesus, we all have our own questions. But what I would imagine is that most of us have different questions that lead us to faith and lead us to Jesus than what people 2,000 years ago were asking that led them to Jesus. I imagine many of us who decided to follow Jesus decided we want Jesus to be the Lord of our life because we had a problem that we needed a solution for. We had questions like, am I lovable? Am I able to be forgiven? Can I experience forgiveness? Can I experience hope? Is there hope for my marriage? Is there hope for me to ever get outside of this addiction? These are all questions about our existence. These are existential questions that many of us asked, which led us to follow Jesus. What I would argue is the first Christians were asking different questions than this. They weren't asking these questions that we ask. As Jewish people living under the oppression of Romans, who eagerly desired for God to be faithful to God's promise to Israel, they're asking a different question. They're asking a different question. Uh, many of us come to faith asking, I want to make sure that after I die that I have hope of eternity. Maybe we heard the question, if you die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And that led us to follow Jesus. In the first century, they weren't asking this question. Uh, there's an encounter Jesus has with two sisters, Mary and Martha, right after their brother Lazarus has died. And the response of the sister displays what many people who were Jewish people in the first century would have believed about the afterlife. Let me read this to you from John 11. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This statement right here would have been the common attitude for most in the first century. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last days. This is the basic teaching that the Pharisees gave. Many people much smarter than me believe that Jesus was either a Pharisee himself or presented himself as a Pharisee. One of the central teachings of the Pharisees is that there was going to be the resurrection. Now, there was another group of religious teachers in Judaism known as the Sadducees. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They were a smaller group of thinkers, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's, my friends, why they are sad, you see, right? It's a terrible joke, but you're going to remember the point. The Pharisees taught that there was the resurrection in the last days, just like Jesus taught. What was revelatory about this is what Jesus says next. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What's new here is not the idea of the resurrection, but that the resurrection is a person. They knew there was a resurrection. What they didn't know is the person named Jesus was the embodiment of resurrection for all humanity. When it came to the idea about forgiveness of sins, 
this wasn't a new concept for the Jewish people either. If we read the Psalms, let's read Psalm 130. Here's how the Jewish people understood the forgiveness that was available to them by God. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. Let's go to Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. Some of the most beautiful depictions of the forgiveness available to us by God happen before Jesus. In these poetic accounts like the psalmist gives us right here. That there was forgiveness. Now, for many of us who are new to the story of what God is doing in the person of Jesus... This is new information to us. But that doesn't mean it was new information to followers of God in the first century. It'd kind of be like this. So let's say you're a football fan and you watched a football game yesterday. Now, if you're an A&M fan, <clears throat> sorry. Um, but if you're a UT fan, as the Lord intended, you might have never watched football before. And you watched UT play yesterday and you realize they have a really good running back. Bishon Robinson is a great running back. And you saw the game and thought, wow, the University of Texas has a great running back because you didn't know that until that game took place. But if you have been following UT for years, you've known that that has been true all along. Now, some people who are new to the story of what UT football is, that is new information to them. But if you've been following all along, that has always been true for the last couple of years. Just because it's new to you doesn't mean it's the news that UT fans are most excited about what took place yesterday. Does that make sense? For, for Jewish people, they believed that there was forgiveness. They believed that there was an afterlife, which is why they were asking a different question. Now, for those of us who are new to faith, this is great information that we never knew before. But that doesn't mean that that's the good news that they were asking about. There was a different question the Jews were asking. These were people who were living under Roman oppression, who've been told all along that God will give you a Messiah. And what they were waiting for would be the person who would bring things back together, who would redeem all things, who would restore all things, who would take the foreshadowing of what the temple was for the Jewish people and bring it to all humanity. That's what they were waiting for. Which is why if you look at how the word gospel is used in the books of the Bible that the church has called the gospels, it's not talking about forgiveness of sin. It's not talking about going to heaven when you die. It's describing something much different that actually is the answer to the question that the Jewish people were asking. Uh, let's go to the Gospels. Let's start with Matthew's Gospel. Watch how Matthew 4 uses the word good news or gospel. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news. That's the word gospel. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Matthew describes the good news as the kingdom. This word good news, it's the word from which we get the English word evangelical or evangelism. It's a political term that in the first century would have been used every time an emperor would have been born 
or a military victory had been accomplished. This was a very political term. The good news is of the kingdom. Let's go to Mark's gospel. See it again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the good news, the kingdom of God. The question that the Jews were asking, is someone going to redeem us? Is someone going to be the fulfillment of God's promise to us? That is the good news. It is the kingdom. Let me read from Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar who says this about the kingdom. He says, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of, of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore have literally done Jesus in. We're asking a different question, so we come up with a different answer. If we look at the very first sermon that was ever preached, this is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Watch how the sermon completes itself. Let me read this to you from Acts chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first audience, the first Christian sermon ever preached, they were cut to their heart. But it's not because of this message right here. It's not because of the follow-up. It's not because of the application of the sermon. It's because of the previous words. Let's go back. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah. This is the one who oversees the kingdom. This is the one who is the fulfillment of all we've been waiting for. This is the good news of Jesus in his kingdom. This is the gospel. That in this person, Jesus, that God is restoring and redeeming all things. It, in many ways, Jesus is the temple in flesh. Which is why Jesus will say in John 2, I will tear down and destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. Because the temple was the foreshadowing of God's plan for the entire world. Where there is one place in the entire world where God's presence dwelled. In the Holy of Holies. But eventually God's plan is to spread so that on earth it will be as in heaven. And that is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And that is the good news. That's the gospel. This is who Jesus is. The gospel is a statement of Jesus' identity. That's the message. 
Now, let me tell you a story. Let me just imagine this. I want you to imagine that this is your story. Imagine your beloved grandpa, your last living grandparent, passes away. And this grandfather of yours was extremely close to you. This is the grandfather that taught you how to make pancakes. This is the grandfather who always gave you that one candy every time you saw him. He'd slip it into your hand every time he would give you a hug. And now you find yourself loving that candy even though you know it's not a good candy. This is the grandpa who had always scribbled this heartfelt note every year school began. And even once you got out of school, he was still writing a note for you. And while the handwriting got a little bit more scribbly and harder to read, the messages meant just as much to you. Your last grandparent, and he passes away. And the whole family gets together around the holidays. Because you know that grandpa left a note for everyone in the family. And so you see that it's going to be your aunt who's reading the note. She's the oldest in the family. And so the whole family is sitting down, and you see her open this envelope for the first time, and it says, read at Christmas in your grandfather's scribbly writing. She opens it up, and she starts to read these beautiful words that your grandpa's wrote, written for everyone in the family. It says, this is my daughter. She means the world to me. My son, my grandkids. Just one after the other, he speaks words of life to everyone in the family. And tears start to fill your eyes. And you look around the room and you realize everyone else has tears welling up in their eyes too. Except your little brother. And you see your little brother and something is just disconnected from him in the moment. And so he, he stands up and you feel your stomach fill up with anxiety. Because you don't know what your brother is going to do. And he does the last thing you want him to do. And he, he walks from the back of the room to the very front of the room. And everyone's terrified. And you try to do something, but he gets to your aunt before you could stop him. And he grabs the letter, and he takes it out of her hand. And everyone's confused, and you see him start skimming through it. Blah, 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 turns it over, blah, blah. Ah, yes, and, and my grandson, he gets the TV. Cool. And he drops the letter, and he walks out. How would you feel? If he just asked, what, what, what do I get out of this and everything else I don't care about, I'm going to step away because all I want is what's in it for me. You'd be horrified. It's a theologian named Dallas Willard who said that many Christians today have become the equivalent of that, where we are vampire Christians only going to Jesus to fix our sin management problem. Where the only thing we want from Jesus is your blood who takes away my sin problem and the entirety of the message of Jesus, the entire kingdom, we just go blah, 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 blah. That doesn't affect me. Oh, Jesus, you're fulfilling God's faithful promise to Israel. Yeah, I don't care. God, you're redeeming and restoring all things. and That's not about me. Well, you take away my sins. Okay, that's all I want. It's so all we care about is sin management. And so what ends up happening is we have a gospel that looks not too dissimilar from this. Where we go, the gospel is me me and my problems. 
where we think the question that the gospel is supposed to answer is just about me. And what ends up happening, we live in the same sort of me-centric existence, which never creates joy and, more importantly, never creates disciples. Because the gospel has always been about God being at the center of everything and me out here. And when you do that, you experience the byproduct of joy. Joy happens when God is at the center of your existence. There's a Hungarian psychologist named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. If you're looking for a name for your next kid, write that down. And he coined the phrase flow, which you might have never heard of the idea of flow, but you probably know what it is. It's, it's that moment when everything just seems like it's making sense, like everything's going in the right direction. Where if you're trying to create something, like you, you slave away for days and days and nothing ever happens. But then you have that moment where you just have this rush of creativity. That's flow. In some ways, it's like you're living outside of yourself. Here's his description of flow. And if you're wondering how to spell Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, that's, that's it right there. It's a great name. He says, flow state is this, a state in which people are so involved and an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience is so enjoyable that people will continue to do it, even at great cost, for the sheer sake of doing it. Because you're living beyond yourself. And what I would say is the flow state is what happens when you live out the gospel. Because God has an intention for each and every one of you. That you don't live this sort of egocentric, narcissistic life, which everything is just about you, where your relationships are about you, whether they're with people or with God, but instead that you have this higher calling. Because there has been news that changes everything, that in Jesus, God is redeeming and restoring all humanity. And you have a vital role to play in this process. Where Jesus isn't someone you go to just to take care of a problem you have, but instead you go to Jesus because you want him to be the center of everything. And this has always been the picture of what God is doing. Uh, I have a text I want to read to you from the book of Revelation. And if you're physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The book of Revelation, scripture says this. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us to be a kingdom. Priest serving his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. The blood of Jesus frees us. By all means, it does. But that itself was never the end. The end was always for you to become a kingdom and priest. This is what Peter writes and says that you are a royal priesthood. That because of what God has done in Jesus, you now live in to your identity as people who live out the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord. And that's your calling. 
Uh, I want you to hear how uh, theologian N.T. Wright talks about this text. So would you please watch the screen? I think I want to start at the end and say God's design is, as Ephesians 1 says, to join all things in heaven and on earth together in the Messiah. Now, in the Messiah, that is in Jesus, heaven and earth come together. He is the heaven and earth person. And what he does in his life, in his inauguration of the kingdom, in his death and resurrection and ascension, is to make that now a cosmic reality. And the New Testament comes back again and again and says that something happened when Jesus died as a result of which the world is a different place. Nobody realized until Easter Day, and it took them a while to realize even then, but that something happened. And this is very difficult for us to talk about because it's to do with there being dark forces in the world which we humans give power to by worshiping them, whether we call them gods or whether we just think of them as money and sex and power or whatever it is. And then they have power over us. We worship them, which is idolatrous, our humanness fractures, which is sin, etc. How are we rescued from that? And here's the problem, that we in the West have tended to see the whole thing in terms of have I behaved myself sufficiently or not. Right. Here is a moral standard. God wants me to obey it. Oh, dear, I haven't. Then God's going to punish me. Oh, fortunately, somebody gets in the way and takes the rap on my behalf. And I want to say that's a very low-grade, almost pagan view of how a God might behave. And it's, we get there because we have moralized our view of humanity. Morals matter enormously, but humans are more than moral-keeping machines. Humans are meant to be reflecting God's love into the world and reflecting the praises of creation back to the Creator. And it's very interesting that in the book of Revelation, it says that the, the, the blood of the Lamb is shed in the new Passover so that we might be the royal priesthood, the kingdom and priests. Not so that we can heave a sigh of relief and go to heaven. In other words, it isn't about moralizing our vision of humans. It's about a vocation. And Jesus rescues us from all the things that get in the way of our being the genuine human beings we are supposed to be and can start to be now to practice ahead of the final new creation. So it's a little more complicated than sure. we normally think. If only I had a cool accent like that. Make it so much better. There is a vocation that you have where your engagement with the gospel is not just for you to receive something, but for you to live out something. And in doing so, you declare the good news that in the person of Jesus, God is redeeming and restoring all things. And what Jesus began one day will be complete. It will one day be fully on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the good news you and I have to live into. And what happens when we believe the gospel is all of a sudden I become a secondary component of life. And that's freeing for every one of us. It's freeing for you. It's freeing for me. The other day I was driving with my oldest daughter and we saw this scene. It was a tow truck pulling a, a Pontiac. And I, I don't know, I feel like it's just offensive for the car to be carried backwards, right? Like if you're on a stretcher, they don't put you face down, right? It just seems like, all right, we don't need to disrespect the car that way. Uh, I, I don't know towing. I assume that's probably what you have to do. But I love, here's the thing, I, I love Pontiacs. My mom's car when I was a kid was a Pontiac Firebird. I actually learned how to pray in that very Pontiac because my brother started to drive it and would take me to school. And he didn't seem to regard speed limits as something to actually follow. So I learned how to pray in a Pontiac. Um, so I've always loved Pontiacs. But this one really struck me 
If you could zoom in, can you actually see the custom license plate? You know what it says? It says, it's all good. It's not all good, I can tell you that much. If you're on the back of a tow truck being pulled backwards, it's not all good. But I feel like that's a picture of joy. Can you zoom back out? You zoom back out, that's, that's probably how some of us feel right now. Where, where your life is being towed because it's not going where you want it to go. Where things are broken, things aren't running. And if your life is based on things always just being good, it's never going to be good enough. But if the best news you can receive in your life is not that your car works perfectly or that your bank account is good or that your career is going the right direction, but if the best news that you can ever hold to is the gospel that Jesus is Lord, then it doesn't matter where you are and it doesn't matter what state you're in because you too can say it's all good because the good news is enough for you. For many of us, we've been playing this game of trying to get enough goodness into my existence, and it never works. But if you trust that the gospel is enough, it doesn't matter what happens in your life because you have what's good enough already in Jesus. Amen? Because it's good enough. I want to pray for a couple groups of people. And so if if you're comfortable with it, would you bow your head and, and let me begin to pray? God, the first group I want to pray for are those of us here because sin has gotten the best of us. And our life has gotten to a point where it is completely unmanageable. And we just need help. We just need to get through today. And we don't know how to do that. God, I thank you for being a God who takes away our sin, who takes away our shame, who takes away our enslavement, that you can free us. And God, if there's someone in the room right now, and the message that they need to hear is the message of salvation, I pray that they would hear that there is no other name that they need other than the name of Jesus. And for those of us who are terrified about dying, who are terrified about what waits us when we take our last breath, God, I pray that your salvation would set us free. That your salvation would give us the hope that we don't need to live in slavery to the fear of death. Pray for them. But I also, God, pray for another group of people. I pray for those of us who have decided that we want to follow you. We want you to be the Lord of our life, and we have died to ourselves in the waters of baptism, and we've been resurrected a new person. But for one reason or another, we've never taken the next step of believing that the message of Jesus as Lord is the center of our existence, that it's everything for us. And we've just stayed in 101, and we've never moved to 201. And so we keep on thinking that we're going to only experience joy if we get enough of the good life. That our life always goes the way we want. God, I pray that you would fill us with the confidence that the gospel that Jesus is Lord is all the goodness that we need. That is the anchor that we can build our life upon. It is the foundation on which we can stand. 
that it's what we can go to bed thinking of and we can wake up trusting in, that it is enough for us, that you are the God who is redeeming and restoring all things, and that you are putting the world back together one life at a time. So God, I pray that we wouldn't just be here just for a sin management problem, but that we'd be here because we're disciples of Jesus and we want you in our life. God, we pray this in your name. Amen.